This meeting is now being recorded. Shalom, everyone. This is Elliot Schoenberg speaking, International Director of Placement for the Rabbinical Assembly, and this is Chodesh Tov, a monthly podcast, a joint project of the Jewish Theological Seminary, the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies, the Schechter Rabbinic Institute in Jerusalem, and the International Rabbinical Assembly. The purpose of Chodesh Tov is to bring to the world and to our colleagues cutting-edge information in, in various fields of Jewish study. Today, we are pleased and honored that Professor Jeffrey Rubenstein, the Skirbel Professor of Talmud and Rabbinic Literature in the Skirbel Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies of New York University, will be our presenter. He writes on a variety of different topics. His latest books are The Culture of the Babylonian Talmud and Stories of the Babylonian Talmud. Thank you, Dr. Rubenstein, for joining us today. everyone. I'd like to discuss here what has recently emerged as the scholarly consensus regarding the development of rabbinic academies in Babylonia. This issue is connected to the question of the redaction of the Bavli and also other aspects of Talmudic research and presents a fascinating example of how literary methods impact our reconstruction of history. The question of when rabbinic academies developed in Babylonia did not attract much interest prior to the mid-1970s, so it's really then that our story begins. Until that time, scholars assumed that the sages had pretty much always studied in academies, that is, in highly developed academic institutions resembling those familiar to us from Gaonic sources, the great academies of Surah and Pambadita of the Islamic era. Various Gaonic sources project the founding of academies all the way back to the Babylonian exile in a very anachronistic way. And although Wissenschaft scholars, of course, realized that this was not the case, they tended to assume that academies arose very quickly in Babylonia in the early Amoraic period, following what they assumed, also anachronistically it would turn out, what they assumed was the case in the Tanaitic times in Eretz Israel. That is, that the Tanaim too assembled in rabbinic academies. In 1975, David Goodblatt published a groundbreaking book, Rabbinic Instruction in Sasanian Babylonia. He examined the depictions of the forums of learning of Babylonian Amoraim and the Bavli and argued that the Bavli typically associates Babylonian Amoraim with the Beirav, or Beirav Tzoni, which Goodblatt argued was a small disciple circle that gathered around an individual rabbi, presumably meeting at that rabbi's house, hence the term Beirav. When that rabbi died and when the students decided that they had learned enough, they departed to another master or to gather students of their own. The circle, the rabbinic circle, the disciple circle, dissolved, one might say. Babylonian Amoraim were rarely described as studying in a yeshiva or a metiska or even a beit midrash. But in any case, these words are ambiguous. Yeshiva means a session a study session, sometimes a court session, but does not necessarily tell you anything about the setting of that session. So, for example, in Tanit 24b, Rava says, we study tractate Uptsin in 13 Mitivata, which means that they studied Uptsin for 13 sessions or in 13 sessions, but not in 13 academies. 
Whiplash's point was that rabbinic learning did not take, take place in institutions in Babylonia in Amoraic times. An institution being a form of organization that has a corporate identity, a life of its own, a staff, a curriculum, and that transcends the individuals who are there at any given time. The form of organization we associate with the academies of the Gaonic era. Now, it turns out that Shia Daphne was writing a dissertation on this very subject at about the same time as Goodblatt's book came out, and he came to somewhat different conclusions. Daphne did not publish his dissertation, but he published his conclusions in a long article in the journal Sinai in 1978. He agreed with much of what Goodblatt said, but he pointed out that there were a number of passages, about 35, where yeshiva or metifta seemed to refer not to a session, not to a court, but to a Gaonic-type academy. So Daphne dated the rise of the academy to the mid-Amoraic period, though not its very beginning, let's say the third or fourth generation. Of course, Goodblatt was aware of those passages, and he attempted to deal with them in a kind of ad hoc manner. He disputed Daphne's interpretation of some of them, or argued they could be scribal errors, or late glosses, or passages from the Shield Toad, and other works that entered the Bobbly by mistake, and so forth. His general argument was more based on statistics and proportion. Perhaps you have a few marginal cases, but the overwhelming majority of passages place Babylonian Amorayim in the Beirav, the disciple circle, not in an academy. Goodblad wrote a response to Gaffney's article in 1981, and Gaffney then a response to Goodblad a few years later. But neither response made uh, much advance or added much substance, and the debate seems to have stalled at that. Now, the key to solving this impasse derives from a critical revolution in Talmudic methodology that was taking place at about the same time. In fact, arguably the most important methodological development of the past century, namely the theories of David Weisselizny and Shama Friedman, that the Bible contains two literary strata, the Amoraic stratum of Nemrot, of attributed statements, and the anonymous or Stam stratum, a post-Amoraic stratum produced by sages Halizny called the Stamayim. Halizny and Friedman, who came to this conclusion independently, published their theories in 1975 and 1977, respectively. At about the same time, Goodblatt and Gaffney did their research. But, of course, it took a few years for these theories to become known and accepted, so neither Gaffney nor Goodblatt incorporated the theories of Halizny and Friedman into their purview. Now, what happens if you take those 35 or so passages that Gaffney pointed out seem to testify to academies in Amoraic times in light of Halifni's and Friedman's theory? Well, it turns out that many of those passages actually appear in the Stamiotic stratum, not in the Amoraic Mamros themselves. I'm going to quote one example of this. I realize you don't have the text in front of you, but I think you'll be able to follow. I'm quoting from Gidden 6a. <clears throat> Itamar, Bazel, Rav Amar, Ke'eret Yisrael Legitim, Ushmuel Amar, Ke'chutz La'aretz. We have a machloket between Rav and Shmuel over the status of Babylonia with respect to certain laws of writing Gitim. Rav says Babylonia is like the land of Israel. Shmuel says it is like the diaspora. After some discussion, the Talmud explains, <clears throat> Rav Savar, Ke'van de'ika mitivata, Mishkah Shechei, 
ושמועות סבר מטיבתה בגרסאיהו פרידי. רב סיקס, רב סבר, שבסנס דבר ישיבות אין בבלוניה, witnesses can be found for the teaching, whereas Shmuel thinks, Savar or Shmuel holds, that the Yeshivot are busy with their studies. <clears throat> Now the details of the reasoning are not important, but I think you can see that this is an Aramaic and a Stamaitic explanation of the opinions of Rav and Shmuel, but it is not necessarily their words or even what they had in mind. In the old days, <clears throat> this would have been considered, even if not the verbatim words of Rav and Shmuel, then at least the words of their contemporaries, of Kol B'nai HaYeshiva, the members of the academy, and would have been taken as Amoraic. Indeed, this is exactly what Gosme claims. But once we realize that it is the explanation of the Stamahim, then whatever Mitivata means here, even if it does mean an academy, an institutional academy, it does not tell us about the situation in Amoraic times, but only in a later time, that of the stone. Now, another group of Gaffney's 35 examples appear in the Bavli in Agadot, and especially in lengthy stories. And again, we can ask the question, are these sources Amoraic or Stamaitic? In a book I published in 1999, Talmudic Stories, Narrative Art, Composition, and Culture, drawing on a long article by Shama Friedman, I argue that many of these bodily narratives are, in fact, Stamaitic compositions. They are much expanded and changed from the parallel versions in the Yerushalmi or in other Palestinian sources. They were composed by transferring material from other passages, much like Stamaitic halachic sigiyot, and there are other considerations that point to post-Amoraic composition, too. So if we have some mentions of yeshivot or mitivata in the sense of academies and lengthy bodily narratives or other agadot, these do not provide evidence of Amoraic times, but again, of post-Amoraic development. And finally, a third group of passages that Gosney adduced as evidence of academies and Amoraic times contain textual difficulties or variations Sometimes you have the attestation of the academy in only some manuscripts but not in others, or the passage in which the mention of the academy appears is located in different places in the manuscripts, which typically signals a later edition, and there are other problems of this sort. So in essence, you can explain almost all of Gosney's counterexamples to Goodlet's uh, conclusion in one of these ways. Thus, to sum up so far, both Goodlet and Gosney were correct. Goodblad was correct to date the rise of the academy to post-Amoraic times. Gaffney was correct to claim that there are indeed references to academies in the Bavli. However, these references belong to the post-Amoraic stratum, to the Stamaitic stratum, and therefore support Goodblad's rather than Gaffney's conclusion. In other words, we now date the rise of the Rabbinic Academy in Babylonia to Stamaitic times, sometimes between the end of the Amoraic era in about 450 to 500 CE and the Gaonic era a century or two later. And once we realize that this is the case, it in fact leads to a more satisfactory understanding of another group of Bible sources, and it gives us a clearer picture of the nature of Rabbinic learning in the land of Israel. The fact is that there are more depictions of this highly developed and well-populated academy in the Bosley set in Tanaitic times and hence in the land of Israel. 
Many of these are the stories that are most familiar to us because of their dramatic qualities. These include the story of the deposition of Rabban Gamaliel in Brasot 27b, where the students of the academy deposed Rabban Gamaliel for his high-handed treatment of Rabbi Yehoshua, and they appoint a different head of the academy in his place. And similarly, the story of Moshe visiting the academy of Rabbi Akiba in Monaco 29b, where he sits in the back row behind rows of students debating an issue, and a story you might know at the end of Tractate Horayot, where Rabbi Natan and Rabbi Meir attempt to depose Rabbi Shimon ben Gamaliel, but they fail and they're kicked out of the academy. And there's also a vivid description of the Babylonian sage Rav Kahana visiting Rabbi Yochanan's academy in Babakama 117a, where Rabbi Yochanan is, uh, where Rav Kahana is moved back through seven rows of students to the last row when he fails to raise objections to Rabbi Yochanan's lecture, and then he's moved forward when he does. Now, all of these stories describe an academy with rows of students. There's a head of an academy, a Rosh Hashiva, and a formal structure similar to that of the Gionic academies. Because all these sources describe the land of Israel, whether in Tanaitic or Amoraic times, neither Goodblot nor Gothney really needed to deal with them. They continued what had been the previous scholarly consensus in assuming these stories accurately, or more or less accurately, described the situation in the land of Israel, where you have these large-scale academies from the Tanaitic through the Amoraic eras. Their claim was about the rise of these types of rabbinic academies in Babylonia, where rabbinic Judaism got going for the most part in the Amoraic age, with Rav and Shmuel bringing the Mishnah to Babylonia. But with our new understanding of the post-Amoraic provenance of much of the Bavli, including Agadot and stories, how then do we understand these sources? It turns out, in fact, that not one of these Bavli stories has a parallel in Palestinian sources that includes the academic elements. Some are Babylonian reworkings of Palestinian stories, but the reworking involves adding the setting in an academic institution. So therefore, they don't reflect the reality of the forms of learning in the land of Israel, neither in the Tanaitic nor Amoraic era. But of course, these descriptions cannot reflect the reality of the Babylonian Amoraim based on what we said earlier. So they too must reflect the Stamaitic reality. The Stamaim reworked stories of the Tanaim and of the Palestinian Amoraim in light of their own reality, anachronistically describing them in rabbinic academies. And indeed, in a recent detailed study of all sources in the Yerushalmi and in Palestinian Midrashim, in a book called The Social Structure of the Rabbinic Movement in Roman Palestine, Catherine Hazer found no evidence of rabbinic academies in the land of Israel throughout Amoraic times. Rabbis assembled there, too, in disciple circles or in a deep midrash, meaning a small school. So now we have uh, a new understanding of the development of the rabbinic settings of learning and of the rise of rabbinic academies. There were no rabbinic academies of the Goanic type in Tanaitic or Amoraic times, neither in the land of Israel nor in Babylonia. Rabbinic study took place on a much smaller scale in the disciple circle, meeting in a master's house or perhaps a small school also, which could have been in a room or two of this house. The large-scale rabbinic academic institutions we know and love developed in the post-Amoraic era, in the Stamaitic era, 
which is why we find them in some passages in the Bible, and especially in anachronistic, nostalgic, and imaginative descriptions of the Tanaim. Let me just close with a final thought about the end of the Amoraic era. Why did the Amoraic era come to an end with the sixth or seventh generation of Amoraim, with Ravina and Ravashi and their colleagues in 450 or 500 or so? Why did these sages in Babylonia stop preserving attributions and shift to functioning in an anonymous mode, Stamaim? What brought about the shift from the Amoraic to Stamaitic eras? The typical answer is persecutions in the 5th century, and Galenic sources do preserve traditions of persecution at this time. But the persecution theory of change in Jewish history is a little overdone, what Salo Baron famously called the lachrymose conception of Jewish history, that all change is due to persecution of one sort or another. Rather, I would suggest that we might look to the development of rabbinic academic institutions as the explanation of the shift. A disciple circle emphasizes individuality. Students learn from a particular master and pass on traditions in his name. An academy is in a corporate body in which numerous students and masters study together. Academies can obscure and cloak individuality by virtue of the communal activity and communal identity they create. Lewis Ginsburg once pointed out that we know the names of remarkably few Gaonim other than the heads of the academies. The other sages, we might say, saw themselves, or at least their successors saw their predecessors, as members of the yeshiva and did not preserve their individual statements as such. Robert Brody has also noted that Gaonic responsa are likewise formulated in the plural and what we might call anonymously or without attribution. Thus we believe, they say, so we hold, so we rule. In other words, we have some cause to see a move away from individual attributions to anonymous corporate formulations in the post-Amoraic period or Stamaitic era with the development of academies. Thus the rise of the academy may go hand-in-hand in Babylonia with the end of the Amoraic age, the shift to the Stamaim and to anonymity. And these developments may in turn be connected to the production of Sugiyot and the redaction of the Babylonian Talmud, although I leave the details of that process for another lecture. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Professor Rubenstein. This has been Elliot Schoenberg, and this has been Chodesh Tov. Thank you, everyone, for joining us.